Kaiju FM. Come find your niche. Welcome to this week's episode of The Prestige, a podcast about films made by film lovers for film lovers. Each week we take a different film and we talk about some of the ideas and themes it throws up after a short review of the film. And we end with our recommendations for films based on the directors or actors involved. The past couple of seasons we've been taking a look at different ideas behind filmmaking. Um, last season we looked at directors and this season we're taking genres and spending some 10 episodes at a time going through a genre in detail. And our last genre, as you know if you've been following us, was vampire movies. And we thought it was a bit heavy, so it was time to do something a bit more lighthearted. And this season we're starting with the first in our series of high school movies. So more of that later. First, we start every week with um, something about what else we've been watching. So Rob, what have you found, apart from destroying your kitchen, which I know you're doing at the moment, what else have you found time to do? Well, um, think since we last spoke, I think you last spoke, um, they finally got around to launching Apple TV. Um, so I've been exploring a little bit of the um, the material on there, and the particular one that's caught my eye and my ear so far is the show for all mankind. Those who don't know the show, it is a opposed an alternative history of what if the USSR had landed on the moon first. It takes that point, basically, the US, the Russians land on the moon about three weeks before uh, NASA were going to land on the moon. Complete surprise, the world changes on a dime. And it's all about where NASA goes from there, and the idea that the space race really never really ended, because they're working off that point. I'm currently three episodes in, um, and it's brilliant. It's 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 that kind of prestige American TV sort of. It has Mad Men vibes to it, but it really brings that kind of the nitty gritty detail of a proper, well imagined on history of what are the actual implications of this X, Y, and Z going forwards. If you like space, if you like NASA and all that thing, if you like kind of history and alternate histories, it's a brilliant show. And if you aren't those aren't your things. Look at it like a Mad Men style show, like a, like a period piece that's just like done to perfection, and and the character themselves are what draws you in. So that's for all mankind. If you haven't seen it already, it's on Apple TV. Oh, what about you, Sam? I, as I mentioned last time, continuing with seeing what's on offer on Bay on their UK TV catch-up service, and I've been having a look at a show called Hypothetical. And it's a bit rough around the edges, but it is fairly well written and the um, contestants are all good fun and it's presented by Josh Widdicombe, who's quite funny, and James Acaster, we 
I know we, we both talked about our love of James Acaster before. And it's written by Tom Crane, who's a very good comedy writer as well, and Matthew Crosby. Um, and yeah, it's just something, something good that something good to put on in the background to wind down to. So yes, this week's recommendation is this year's um, panel show, comedy panel show, hypothetical. As Sam mentioned in the lead there, we are moving into our third mini-season within our current big season. So uh, let's call it a story arc then. And we are moving on from vampire films to look at the history of the high school movie. Now, in the last two seasons, we've looked at martial arts and we've looked at vampire films. We've gone from the very, very early days through and seen sort of the creation of the genre and the creation of the tropes and all of that kind of thing and seen where they ended up. We're doing something a little bit different this time. And rather than going from like the birth of the genre, in many ways, we're going from what is considered the peak of the genre to now. So we're jumping back, we're jumping back 34 years, 34 years. um, And we're looking at the 1985 film, The Breakfast Club. It is now 7.06. You have exactly eight hours and 54 minutes to ponder the error of your ways. Any questions? Yeah. Does Barry Manilow know that you raid his wardrobe? A brain, a beauty, a jock, a rebel, and a recluse. I can't believe this is really happening to me. Before this day is over, they'll break the rules. <coughs> Chicks, can I hold a smoke? That's what it is. Bear their souls. I'm a nymphomaniac. Are your parents aware of this? Take some chances. Being bad feels pretty good. Huh? And touch each other in a way they never dreamed possible. Why'd you do that? Because I knew you wouldn't. The Breakfast Club. They only met once. I don't want to be alone anymore. You don't have to be. But it changed their lives forever. I mean, I consider you guys my friends. I'm not wrong, am I? Universal Pictures presents Emilio Estevez, Paul Gleason, Anthony Michael Hall, Judd Nelson, Molly Ringwald, and Ali Sheedy in a John Hughes film. Why are you being so nice to me? Because you're letting me. The Breakfast Club. Breakfast Club is a John Hughes film. It is the tale of five kids from very different social strata, from different subcultures, from different parts of sort of the teenage experience, all being sent to an all-day detention at school on Saturday. In many ways, it is like a bottle episode of the show. There's the five of them in this library, in this school by themselves. There are there's a teacher and there's a janitor, but basically it's the five of them. And it is essentially the story of them coming in as many ways opposed stereotypes and the movie spends the time with them and each other to break down those barriers and where these people would not be friends at the start of the day they end the day in some sort of friendship even if it is one that may not continue after that day it is it feels a bit reductive to be going through this a little bit because it is obviously it is the peak of the genre it is one of the most well-known movies um, of the genre it is considered but John Hughes is one of the his most his most recognisable his most successful um, pictures. 
It is one that I saw when I was a teenager um, and had a huge influence on me. Sam, I think you may have seen this when you were younger, but I honestly don't know. So how did you find it first time around and how do you find it now? I have a confession to make. This is one of those films that there are, I suppose, maybe three or four films that I really feel I should have seen and because they're so iconic and people I love love them and I just haven't got around to seeing it and it's a crying So this is your first time watching it? So this is my first time. Oh, it's made me happy. Genuinely, it makes me happy (laughs) because it's like... If nothing else, if, if, if these four years of making podcasts have done nothing else but get you to watch Breakfast Club, I'm happy with that. How do you find it? It was it's brilliant. Yes. I love this film. And it just, I'm glad it made you happy because afterwards it just made me a bit sad that it taken me this long to watch something that's barely an hour and a half long mm. and is that good. Um. So yes, I, I really enjoyed it. I... Um, I actually, I particularly enjoy. I particularly, I suppose, in in the first ten minutes or so, first five minutes or so, I thought, particularly as a teacher, that I, I of course, just, I hadn't even th- I, thought about that. I just, I, I, I have taught people like Bender, and I, I just hated him. I just really decided, and then. There was that moment when he's speaking, when in in like in in kind of that first scene, you think, oh, actually, no, he's really got a point. And mm. when it's when he's talking about like after school, like all um, clubs that they do and stuff like that, and you you start you sort of think, well, actually, no, I'd really like him. I love the way that the film did that with. Him, but it's like you say, it, it's built on stereotypes, but it plays with those stereotypes and it makes them definitely it just completely different from who you mm. thought they were going to be at the start. So, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I particularly enjoyed the way that it changed like that. Well, I'm so, I mean, because like, I saw this film when I was 14, 15 at school, um, and it was many ways a similar experience for me. Um, because we will touch more on this as we go through the different um, movies that we're talking about over the next 10 weeks. But in many ways, I suppose the teenage experience isn't often, or at that point, like, wasn't often portrayed realistically. Um, it's either, you know, over the top um, things, or it's, you know, the early St. Trinian's films, or it's that kind of thing. It's, you know, just William stories, all that kind of stuff. Like, it, it's not. I suppose the real minutiae of being a teenager and granted you know i'm growing up in you know suburban berkshire and they're growing up in chicago and obviously there are there's a an ocean and a world between us but and maybe it was 10 years ish because I, I was born in 82 so i was about i was about 10 years later but in many ways it really kind of spoke to me at that time and i watched i'll be watching it again this week and i haven't seen it in a couple of years to be honest but it is one i do return to here and there I really still felt it, and I really still feel how this film does brilliant work. I mean, the, the, the sort of the 
opening speech and closing speech about, you know, you see us as you want to see us, you know, in the most convenient terms and significant. And it is like you go into this movie in the first sort of 10 minutes, it establishes you've got the jock, you've got the princess, you've got the brain, the outcast, the criminal. And that, and as you say, that first 10 minutes, they just play so solidly into that. And they just really hammer home. These are exactly, these are the stereotypes that you think they are. And this is, I mean, this, Sam will probably speak more to this than me, but there's the film, I think, does great work in taking these characters from stereotypes to archetypes. And the idea being that a stereotype is a set sort of thing that is replayed and replayed and replayed, whereas an archetype is like the, the master copy from which other things build upon. And so at the end of the, the, the film, they are still a princess and a brain and a jock and a, a weirdo and a criminal. They're still those things, but we've taken them upper level the sort of the minutiae of the of their lives we deal with has gone up a level and i think that's why i like it because it takes all those things where as a teenager particularly you feel pigeonholed into being a certain thing you are this thing you are the goth kid you are the nerd kid you are the jock and this film peels back those layers and kind of shows everybody that the internal person you are everyone has that too and I think that's a, a great thing because films can, I mean, so many films can get lazy with stereotyping because it's easy. Stereotyping is such an easy move because it conveys to the audience very quickly who this person is, what they're going to do. It's a real, like, easy and effective move for uh, sort of writing. And this film, even, I mean, even in the, the adult characters, I'll touch more on later, but certainly there, I think even great work was done there to try and give them more dimensions, even if their focus isn't on them. There's certainly more done there to give those guys, I suppose, that kind of light and shade that you sort of see elsewhere. You're talking about the adult carriers there. I mean, Vernon is an interesting one. Mm. And this, I feel, and like you said, yeah, feel from me as a teacher watching this, I think that there is a sense in which he's the end of a generation mm. and I started I think of teachers nowadays particularly those I work with as it, it it's not I mean it, there seemed he says at one point he says to the janitor look I just I thought this would be oh no the janitor says to him you thought this would be easy right you mm. get time off in the summer and it's just it's kind of kind of you get the feeling that that's what the job was like for him, and yeah, I feel like teachers that the past thirty years or so have become much more um, focused on. I mean, it, it, it's much more of a vocation. Whereas for someone like Vern, it seems to be just a job that he thought would be fairly easy, and then it turns out it isn't. Yeah, but I think I mean the thing I like about Vernon and like. I'm not saying I like Vernon because I think he obviously he is the antagonist of the story, but I think he is the antagonist rather than the villain of the story. If that mm. makes sense, because like there are real moments of humanizing him. Like he, he in that same conversation he has with Janitor, he's like, "Do you think I care what you think about me?" And the Janitor, says, "Yes, yeah. yes, I think you do care." And he clearly does care because there's a lovely shot later on. He has a big row with Bender, and as he closes the door to the library, you hear Bender shout, "Fuck you!" And this is like almost a held shot of Vernon in the hallway. And you just see this kind of emotion wash over him in which he's kind of like, he's clearly hurt by this. Like he's, yeah. and he's not this, you no know, cigar chomping, mustache twirling villain that somehow he appears to be to the kids. 
yeah, he's clearly a hard ass and clearly doesn't like where his life is. But at the same time, there is some humanity to him. Um, and I think the same for the janitor. I, you know, the janitor is like a character I like. Cause I don't know if you picked up, but there's a shot earlier when you see him as a kid. He went to that school. Oh, right. He, he was like, he like voted most popular. He was like the most popular kid in the year, something like that. He's now a janitor at this school. And there's like depth to him a little bit as, as his character. Like, yeah, he has the mo- like little speech when he says, I know all you kids. And it's kind of, it's that kind of moment of like our pet, adults, they kind of don't get it quite as much and they think they're in scary and they're really not. But there's still work done to humanize him. And those are two minor bit parts. Mm. Whereas obviously the, the, the bulk of the work is on the, on the other five. I do want to one of the one of the points I realised this was such a brilliant film was the scene with I think the, the the best scene in the whole film is scene with the five of them just sitting around talking and it starts off with them being really antagonistic and ends up with most of them in tears mm. and. And the, the reason, reason I found that so effective is not not just for the acting performance. The acting performance is brilliant, and the script is brilliant, mm. and the fact that in, even in a, by today's standards, a relatively short film, an hour and a half, it, it sort of it it takes takes its time over this one scene. It can afford to have like a ten minute long scene. Mm. It it wasn't that it it was it was more than that it was the camera movement it was the way in which so so much I'm, I'm just trying to think about the, the way the camera the camera moves around them at eye level mm. and so much of what they feel about school and what they feel about adults not understanding them is under by that camera movement because that camera movement is on their level mm. that camera is understanding them and you, and you feel as a member of the audience you feel like you understand what's going on with them and you feel like you, there's there's no sort of patronising our oh, kids about it it's, it's really you're really you're really involved in what's going on at that point and it's it's what the director of the cinematographer does with the camera that helps you to understand that. Mm. I think that that scene certainly is the climax of the whole movie, but it's also the microcosm of the whole movie in a nutshell. At that point, they've been through some experiences. Ben took the fall for them. They've gone through um, like certain bonding experiences, but they still start that scene as you say, sort of knocking heads at each other. Ben particularly, mm. he's still knocking heads, and. It takes that scene, and that scene is the that, that scene is the whole movie in many ways. Like they start sharing, and people are honest about stuff. And the, the scene that always gets to me is the the bit at which Claire the, the whole conversation about like are they friends on Monday? And mm. Claire says no, we're not. And I think like, a amazingly brave. If it, a girl who started the film quite shy and quite you know princessy, I suppose that's a hard thing to say. And then she goes on to say that obviously that that for um brian i have their friends are jealous of claire and he's like you're wrong and he, him going like you're so conceited about this to me felt like a huge thing at the start particularly brian is such like a 
but a suck up. He is that kind of teacher's pet character. And to him to go on that journey from where he started to where he ended, that to me is the big moment of the film in which he feels the right to turn around to her and say that, which I don't think he would have at the start. Hmm. They, they, it does feel like they have grown as characters. And it, I suppose, I mean, there's something really, it's, it's just, ludicrous about an all-day detention mm. like there's nothing is going to be achieved and and like, the idea of detention itself is ridiculous in mean, whole day detention even more so there's something like deeply like anti what you're supposed to be doing and mm. um, kind of floaty broadly minds and you end up like keeping them in one place and restricting free Anyway, detention. Down off the high horse, Sam. Yeah, off the high horse. Um, but there's some, some way in which like, what the school has done them has actually worked mm. because they have grown and you kind of feel like they're going to be people in authority, the Vernons of the world, patting each other on the back about it because it has had the required effect. Mm. But I suppose I'm I'm intrigued. I, I suppose the film left leaves it deliberately vague, and I like that. I like the ending the way it is. The film does never answer the question of if they are friends Monday. Mm. It never yeah. answers. I mean, there are two romances that kind of start, I suppose. Um, and I don't know if either of them are going to last a month, uh, be a true Monday. I don't think they are, but I think. That's entirely in my head. I I like the fact the film has the bravery to not end it because I think I think if, if the film works and its strength is because it's it's real in many ways. Mm. Like the, the reality of these kids' lives and the reality of the people portrayed is what gives this film its strength. And I think if the film had tied itself off with a nice little bow, it wouldn't be true anymore. I can certainly speak from my experience of a teenager that very few times did my experience line up with the idea of like a Hollywood hero's journey. Very few points in my life could I say that things got tied up in a nice little bow when we had an ending or had, you know, me and my friends had that big hoorah moment. Like that didn't happen. Even the big sort of societal touch points like leaving due and exam results are big things celebrated but they weren't they were just a thing in the ongoing life of us of, of us in fact that sam mm. and i are here you know 26 years after we met still do it still still talking like because there isn't there isn't a final scene for me and sam in that way there isn't like a a story arc to talk through there's no point in which we reach well that's it we're done now we're just friends and I think that's where the power of this film is because it does, it embodies that feeling of like life goes on and you don't know how it's going to end and it doesn't provide a lovely, brilliant Hollywood ending. Whilst it has that kind of thing of like there's a bit, they all walk out together and there's a moment there, certainly. It's not resolved in the sense that other films would be. And I think, I agree with you, and I, I think. That that is embodied in the final. Let's get into spoilers, people. Yep. But the final scene of the movie, which is brilliant, and has Bender walking across a sportsman mm. towards a camera with "Don't You Play," and 
he it ends on a freeze frame of him punching the air, and you think it would have been so. It would, if this were a different film, you're right. You you could have things tied off in a neat bow, and you could have settled that question of whether they were friends on Monday or not. And you have that that moment is brilliant because it's Bender punching the air, and it's just it's a celebration of a now. Mm. It doesn't matter what Monday morning is going to be like to him. It doesn't matter whether you're going to be friends or not on Monday. It, all this film says is live now because that's what I mean that's what teenage years are it, it's that you know everything oh, the other thing is that everything's important and nothing is in many ways and the you know the film embodies that in many ways you know that, that it's live now as you say as someone who loves the film I'm very glad that you liked it I'm very glad that you got from it maybe not what I get from it because we sort of different points in my life but that you still get a lot from it, like I do, if that makes sense. Um, because I do think, I mean, I, I, anyone who follows me on um, Letterboxd from now, I gave, I gave this five stars, and I still think I still think this is a five-star brilliant movie. And I'm very intrigued, because the, the conceit of this season certainly is we're going to go from sort of this movie to now. And to start on what I think is probably the best film within the genre... Yeah, I think it, like weirdly as as a, as a podcast of how on and someone talks about movies, kind of for what I do, this is something that's exciting. To, like where, like what 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 to next, and how are the films going to compare to this, mm. and you know the, the the long tail effect of this movie, which has established these archetypes and has built such a huge weight um, after it. It's it's great. Like we we, we were at Dracula. Um, uh, when we watch you doing Vampire, like we f- you feel the long tail of Dracula's influence all the way up to what we do in the shadows. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you can see things like Twilight, the, the peak of the genre, um, or the whether commercially or critically, like the peak of the genre. You feel the effect of that rolling off us, and like this conceit. Spoilers was, was Sam's idea. The idea to do this first and go from there was Sam's idea, and I really like it because it just kind of we see how this plays out. And as someone who is who is at some point quite a large fan of this movie, I quite like that. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Do you have anything to recommend, Sam? I do. This week, actually, I've got three. Um, because I had two, and then I've got another one just to annoy Rob. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> I'll get that out of the way first. Um, Anti-Michael Hall was also in one, one of Rob's films. It's a Christopher Nolan film, The Dark Knight. And I say this partly to annoy Rob, he's going to cry, but partly because I loved this film at the time, and I still feel I was blown away by it at the time. And I mean, it is the, it's one of the least romantic early dates in history. My wife and I went to see this film, it came out in the cinema. Um, but I, I love particularly Heath Ledger's performance in this film. I do really like this film. I was fairly disappointed by the sequel, or by the third in the series. I did really enjoy that. My, so my two my two actual recommendations, non-winding rub-up recommendations, are, um, firstly, in love the John Hughes film, um, we... As Rob says, we're going to start 
with the Breakfast Club and then we're going to jump forward a few years. So we're not going to do this, which is the year after the Breakfast Club. It's Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which I have seen. It's, I mean, it's great, but in some ways I think, well, how have I seen Ferris Bueller and not seen the Breakfast Club? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's, there's nothing much to it. It's about um, Matthew Broderick skipping school for a day. It, it, it is a really good film, and it's John Hughes at the peak of his powers in the 1980s. So, yes, I recommend that. And my second recommendation is a film which uses um, The Breakfast Club, also uses Don't You Forget About Me, um, to good effect, I think. It's the 2012 film Pitch Perfect, um, which is, I suppose, later in the series, it goes a bit sort of playing to the masses a bit. I, I did really enjoy the first Pitch Perfect film, and I do really rate Anna Kendrick in this. Um, so this uses, um, don't you forget about me, in... Establishing a relationship between Anna Kendrick's character and her love interest, who is a huge fan of Breakfast Club, and in in particular, it uses the song "Don't You Forget About Me" to good effect. So mm-hmm. that that's my second recommendation this week. Well, third recommendation. Well, if you can do three, I can do three, um, and I'm gonna. Um both beat actor recommendations. I did toy with um, doing some John Hughes stuff, but I thought you'd uh, pick that up, so I shall leave it there. So I'm going to go first of all for uh, Molly Ringwald, who plays Claire in this, and is in many ways the the icon of, of the Brat Pack era that she's part of. So my, my quick side recommendation, um, in 2004 there was a documentary called Electric Boogaloo, The Wild Untold Story of Canon Films, about the Canon Films um sort of movie house she pays it she's in it as herself talking about the films that she was in if you like that kind of exploitation movie that i do it is one of the best documentaries about it she's not in it in a kind of huge way but she's in it and so it's a chance for me to mention that and plug it my second recommendation is a film that is very often forgotten despite its cast um and that's the 1999 high school comedy Teaching Mrs. Tingle. Now, this film stars Helen Mirren, Katie Holmes, and it stars uh, Molly Ringwald. It's about Katie Holmes playing a student at school who kidnaps and tries to get a better grade out of her teacher, Helen Mirren. It is very much a black comedy. It is very 90s in its kind of nihilistic quite dark humour and quite dark way of looking at the world. But it's great. It didn't do much money. I think it had a budget of about 13 million and made about 9 million back. It was a flop. But I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed Helen Mirren it. She plays quite open. She she chews on the scenery quite a lot and is good in that respect. She brings the weight of her ability to it. Uh, Kitty Holmes is in that kind of post Dawson's Creek trying to sort of play the bad girl period. She did some interesting films in that period. Um, and other great people like Jeffrey Tambor's in it, Barry Watson. Good, solid support. It's not going to change your life, but uh, it's one that's forgotten. And as I often try and triumph on this show, movies that have been forgotten. Talking of movies that are forgotten, 
My last recommendation is a film that I'm 99% sure I've plugged on this before. I've brought it up previously at some point in the last four years. Um, it's a film that I know as The Man With Three Arms, because that was its UK release. I think across the pond around the world, it was called The Dark Backwards. Um, it is a satirical film um, starring Judd Nelson with support from Bill Paxton, from Lara Flynn Boyle, from Wayne Newton, from Rob Lowe, James Cann. Like It's got an amazing cast. It's about a failing comedian played by Judd Nelson who grows a third arm out the middle of his back. And how he uses this to get renowned in the scene and how he exploits and is exploited by people. It is weird and it is strange. And I owned it on VHS as a kid and it stuck with me over the years. It's one of those movies where if people watch it and absolutely hate it, I would not be surprised in the slightest. In any way, it is a film that you are either going to really love or really hate. And if you hate it, you are on the majority there. But the few of us who do love it, really love it. So I don't even know where you'd be able to see it currently. If it's out there, um, I've got it on VHS. So if you haven't seen it and you ever find yourself in, in ownership of a copy or know someone who does, please check it out because it's a weird, odd little movie um, that I spend a lot of time in. So that's The Dark Backwards. Right. Here I am, championing these films that no one ever cares about. But that's my job, I feel. When you say you got it on VHS, I think you should like just offer to DM your address to people so that you can send them the VHS. <laughs> Open my own bright VHS store? Yeah. Oh, that's the dream. That's the dream. So, guys, we are going to be back next episode with the next high school movie um, that we're looking at. And it's a film from a couple of years later. And it's a very different sort of film, but maybe playing with similar sort of themes. Um, and that's the 1989 film Dead Poets Society. Till then, guys, you can find both of us online at Petty Podcast. You find just me at Life underscore Academic. And you can find just me at Kaiju FM. And we'll see you back here in two weeks. <laughs>